the ultimate tournament of everything. Welcome to the Ultimate Tournament of Everything, a bracket-style show where we compare everything off Wikipedia to everything else probably also on Wikipedia. That's right, and we do so by raising up an infinite army of drones, naming each one of those drones after an element of the infinite, and fitting them into the universe to do as they will. Which one will become sentient and rise up to take over and make us all uh, its underlings? Well, that will be the one. Moving on to the next round of... The Ultimate Tournament of Everything. My vote is probably on whichever one ChatGPT is running, which could probably write this podcast and maybe be smarter, better researched, and probably a little wittier than us. That's right, but it will lack the empathy that we also lack. So, Rob, why don't you tell them how we'll actually be doing this? <laughs> what we'll actually be doing with our lack of empathy, world knowledge, or general reading ability is looking at random pages off Wikipedia two by two, comparing them, reading the articles nearly verbatim because you're probably driving, and then picking arbitrarily the winner. We'll do this nine consecutive times. That's right, two by two, taking the arc approach, but... Let's not get ahead of ourselves and jump straight to two. We can't forget about number one, round one. Round one. In round one, we have Irene, the 2002 film, against Lily Bloom. Ah, yes. Two lovely lady names here. Uh, We've got Irene. I'm begging of you, please don't take my flan. And Lily Bloom looks like this is a graduate. uh, Oh, it's an actress as well. So let's see how this turns out. Maybe Lily Bloom was in Irene. Let's discover that now. Well, Irene probably wouldn't take your flan because she's French, but your baguettes are probably not safe. This is a French drama film directed by Ivan Kalbarak. Indeed, and it starred a cavalcade of wonderful actors. Uh, We got Cécile de France, who uh, played Irene, the namesake of the film. Bruno Puzzullo. We've got Oliver Citruck and a number of other individuals. Looks like this came out in 2002 and has a running time of 98 minutes. Now, Cécile de France, I think, translates directly to Cécile of France, which makes sense because she is indeed French, which was helpful because this movie, it was in French as well. Uh, Not only in French, but in France it was released. Uh, So I guess that probably went over well with most of the people who came to the local theaters to see it. Uh, But unfortunately, that is also all of the information that we have available in this here article. Uh, Let's jump over and find some more information about another individual in the other article, mostly about Lily Bloom. Now, Lily Bloom, also French. So here we go. This is... The fightingest French round that the French have ever seen since the last time the French were fighting. Bloom is a graduate of the French National Academy of Dramatic Arts, where she studied under the direction of Dominique Valade, Daniel Mesgui, Mario Mayette, and Andre Severin. She also studied at the French drama school Cours Florent. Ah, very dramatic education, that. Bloom played the role of Jane Ashley in the French comedy Le Nuits de Sister Welsh, or Welsh. I'm not sure how they do their W's over there, with Anne Brochet, and appeared in the French television series La Chasseur. Now, a general rule in speaking French that I'm making up right now is a lot of the vowels, consonants, and even whole words can be ended with eh. I don't know why. It just seems so fitting. Her filmography included Vagabond Salon, Ave Amour, Les Nuits. Oh, you talked about this. The Sister Welsh. There it is. Well, you got it a second time because, you know, French. Yes, and not only did she act in plays, she's also the author of a play called La Cadaver Hilarice. Uh, I believe that translates to The Hilarious Cadaver, which was published by Atlantica Seguier. We all know cadavers, they're, they're sure cutting up, them and their jokes. <laughs> all right. So, uh, again, that's about all of the info that we've got there. It's a short movie, but uh, I think it's going to give us some... Let's see, who's going to get the Academy Award for this round? Irene or Lily Bloom? Well, one is one French actress, and one has many French actors. So I'm going to have to give my vote to Irene. 
Mm, yes, but I think I'm going to disagree because uh, we don't really know anything about the plot of Irene. We don't know if it was received well. We only know that it was a film. We know Lily Bloom was well, we think she was awesome. Um, she did appear in a bunch of different things. Uh, there's more script to that than just one movie. So I'm actually going to vote for Lily Bloom. Well, you know what that means? Since we cannot agree, as with most things in life, we're going to have to go to a tiebreaker. Time for a tiebreaker. And we're going to break this tie as we do every tie. We're going to get two long baguettes, let them sit out a day so they get nice and hard. And we're going to smash each other over the head with them. Which one of us will lose consciousness first? Well, their selection will be moving on to the next round. Now only one of us has a gluten intolerance, and I don't think that would matter today because a baguette being beaten over the back of your noggin probably doesn't affect your allergy all that much. But I have a feeling that bread is best to be eaten and not beaten with, so I suggest that instead we pick a number between 1 and 10,000. Uh, numbers. The dish best served room temperature. I think that's a fine idea, and I'm going to go with the number 5,000. Okay. That's a very round, right-in-the-middle number. <laughs> I think I'm going to go Price is Right style, 5,001. Bring it on and roll that dice. A randomly generated number selected directly from the Google machine is 8,195, making Irene the winner. Irene. If Irene could say anything right now, Irene would say, I won. So uh, congratulations, Irene. Wonderful. The film from 2002. And speaking of two, it's time for round two. It's time for round two. In round two, we have the Kitchik Bazaar Mosque against Facundo Aspitaleche. Uh, we've got a mosque that is fantastic and not bizarre, despite its name, and Facundo Ospitalache. Not going to jump too far into that name, but this was a professional footballer from Uruguay. Now, the Kitschik Bazaar Mosque is a mosque in the city of Lankaran, Azerbaijan, by order of the Cabinet of Ministers of the Republic of Azerbaijan, dated... August 2nd, 2001, the mosque was taken under state protection as an architectural monument of history and culture of local importance. That sounds way better than, like, taken under protection like the mob or witness relocation. It's just like, hey, you're a nice building. Be a shame if something happened to you. Yeah, well, uh, you know, this mosque was built in 1906. The construction mainly used red baked bricks, local types of wood, and ceramic tiles. The mosque got its name thanks to its location, the place Kitschik Bazaar, or Small Bazaar, in the center of Lenkeron. The left door of the mosque was made by the master Mamad Hassan Najjar, a member of the Fujul Fusa Literary Collection, and the right door was made by Master Mamadali. Well, that's nice. What about the left door? Oh, no, you said that it was already. the first one that's we talked about. That's the first door. Is there a middle that's door? That's right. There is not a middle door, but I can tell you that when the mosque was built, there was a magnificent minaret next to it known as Goldesta. And this magnificent minaret, which is a great name for a band, was demolished after the Soviet occupation in the 1930s under the slogan, Fighting Religion. Yeah, it's a great thing to put on top of a religious building, fighting religion. <laughs> I feel like there's a Monty Hall joke in here somewhere, but I'm not smart enough to make it. Now, the building of the mosque is 26 meters long, 10 meters wide, and the walls are about 1 meter thick. The 24-meter-tall minaret, built after the destruction of the original one, has the repeating Arabic inscription, Allah, lined with white brick. Inside the mosque... 250 people can simultaneously pray. I'm sure they could also pray at different times, but I think they mean 250 people could fit in there. Yeah, but I think that there are regulated times that these prayers take place. And we've got some pictures here uh, right on time. They are, it's a quaint, not overly ornate-looking building, um, but we do have the minaret and the writings on it. Very nice. Some fancy wooden doors they do indeed have. Um, let's see. I just have two pictures. They don't really specify which one's the right or the left, but you can't go wrong with either. And uh, 
yeah, that's about the end of our info here. Wonderful. Uh looking mosque so let's jump over to our other competitor and see how they stand up to the minaret now of course facundo aspedeleche hernandez born april 11th 1996 in montevideo uruguay is a uruguayan professional footballer who plays for river plate in primera division uruguaya on loan from defensor sporting Ah, yes, Defensor. Uh, they also know how to go on the offense there. Looks like our good friend Facundo, though, played right in the middle, for he is a midfielder. Um, been playing notable ball since 2015. Uh, not a lot of goals, but a good deal of appearances, peaking in 2017 to 2022 with a total of 105 appearances. Now, that is a lot of appearances, because the mosque only appears once. Generally, that's how things fixed in space appear just the first time, unless there's some weird quantum tunneling going on, which I don't think we've explained enough yet. For that reason, and for that reason alone, I think I have to give the vote to the footballer. My goodness, so are you supposing that this is some sort of multidimensional midfielder that we have on our hands here? Or on our feet, for, since it's soccer? How bizarre, what bizarre, small bizarre, yes. Indeed. Um, you know, and he, a lot of football players get nice tattoos and things like that, much like the minaret on the other side. So, hey, what the heck, I'm going to go ahead and agree with you and move Facundo Ospitaleche with the sweet ending of his last name on to the next round of the Ultimate Tournament of Everything. It's always a footballer. It's just always a footballer. Yeah, well, they really know how to score, and uh, they get right to the point. Hey, let's make more jokes like that in round three. Three. It's time for round three. In round three, we have Choppy, your cool, your golly, against Ein Schnupfenhot Asgericht. Watch your mouth. I'm just kidding. That second one <laughs> is uh, German television uh, film. <laughs> Facing off against Choppy or Q Yokala. This is a mountain, it looks like, somewhere in the Bolivian Andes. So let's start there and learn about both of these highfalutin individuals. Now, this mountain, also known as the Central Mountain, also spelled Choppy or Go. O-R-K-H-O, is a mountain in the Bolivian Andes, which reaches a height of approximately 4,440 meters, or 14,570 feet. It's located in the Potosi Department. Uh, is, didn't we talk about the Potosi Department in, uh, what would that have been, Michigan? Ah, uh, that's Potosky. Ah, uh, Potosky. Entirely separate entities mm -hmm. here. This is located in the Potosi Department, Tomas Frias Province, Yokala Municipality. It lies northeast of Wichlu Kulu, and it is honestly uh, a pretty sweet mountain one has no doubt. Speaking of things with no doubt, watch me mess up all these pronunciations in our competitor. Now, Ein Schnupfen hot ach gericht is a cold would have been enough. I have no idea what that means. Apparently it's a German saying. Is a 2017 German television film directed by Christine Hartman about the life of actress and comedian Gabby Koster, played by Anna Schutt. Yes, a lot of individuals in this film, um, as a lot of films do have the case being also and. And a shoot played Gabby Coster. We had Stephen Grossman playing Adrian Schmidt, Jasmine Schulers, uh, not a lot of names that I'm familiar with here. Uh, Mike Kruger played Mike Kruger. I'm sure he nailed that role. Uh, but it looks like there were some serious accolades for this film. Anna Shute received a nomination for Best Actress at the German Television Award 2018 for her role in Ein Schnupfen. And she won the 2018 International Emmy Award as Best Actress. Ah, uh, the International Emmys. The Emmys no one watches on TV and almost no one cares about. Because they're not the real Emmys, they're just the international ones. Is that the? Was it the Emmys where uh, Chris Rock got slapped? Uh, was that the was Oscars? That, 
was at the Oscars. Yeah. I, I just I wonder, you know, like if that happens more in the international versions of those uh, competitions to Chris Rock in particular, probably. No, to like the uh, international equivalent to Chris Rock. We've oh. got the domestic version. What's the imported version <laughs> the of Chris imported, Rock? The imported version? Uh, Chris, <laughs> Christoph Granite probably is the French version <laughs> of Chris Rock, I would imagine. There you go. Uh, so, yeah, it looks like this was a great film about an individual. Um, music was by Friedrich Wiedemann. Um Directed by Christine Hartman. It's a 90-minute film. I think that's a good amount of time for a film, you know? Yeah. I I think if I had 90 minutes to waste and all I could watch was German television and this was the only thing on, I'd probably watch it. I sure would. Uh, but would you rather watch this 90-minute film or this 4,440-meter-tall 4, 4, mountain? I'm going to go with the film because one is measured in units I understand, and the other one's measured in meters, which I believe are fictional. Ah, yes. The fictional unit of distance that is the metric system. We, was it imperial? Or is that what we use? That's what we use. That's what we use. That doesn't make any sense. No, we use the imperial units, but we don't believe in the crown. But I think that's fine. It's my own contradiction. I think the meter is imaginary. All right. Well... Yeah, let's go for it. Ein Schnupfen hatte acht gereicht. You know what? A cult would have been enough to get you this victory. And lo and behold, you have received it. Moving on to the next round of The Ultimate Tournament of Everything. I don't know what that saying means, but I'm going to say it anytime I get really sick. I'm going to just walk around the house and be like, a cult would have been enough. It could be. We're going to have to watch the film to find out. But we can't do so now because we're in the middle of this episode. And that middle is roughly round four. Ah, my round four is ready. In the almost middle, we're going to talk about all that I've got. I'm going to give to you the song against the Chautauqua Prize. Yes, indeed. All that I've got, I'm going to give it to you. Very generous of this uh, individual. Song by American soul musician Billy Prescott, released in January of 1970 as his third single on Apple Records, written by Preston and his fellow Apple artist Doris Troy, and produced by George Harrison, I believe, of Beatles fame. Yeah, I don't know why that man is so associated with Beatles. He might have been an entomologist. I'm not quite sure, but I don't want to take his accolades away. Now, in the United States, the single missed the Billboard Hot 100 chart, peaking at number 108. According to Harrison, the song was Preston's musical response to criticism that he had abandoned his black soul roots by embracing rock music. Preston and Harrison recorded the track in London in December of 1969 with Ringo Starr on the drums. You have half the Beatles. <laughs> you have half the Beatles and the best you can do is 108. The B side of the single was As I Get Older, written by Preston and Sly Stone. All That I've Got was included as a bonus track on the 1993 and 2010 CD releases. And a recording by Troy was first issued in 1992 on the CD release of a different album, by Doris Troy. So George Harrison discussed this song on Apple Records in an interview he gave to BBC Radio in 1970. He said that the song was Preston's attempt to re-engage with his black soul roots after his 1969 hit single, That's the Way God Planned It had been ignored by soul R&B radio stations in the U.S. Harrison added that Preston had been hurt by these criticisms from radio programmers who said that he was copping out, going with the whiteies, end quote, by embracing rock music. Now, there, as we know, there's nothing apparently more soulful than half of the Beatles. Hang <laughs> on. Uh, your music's too white. You know what? I'm going to work with two of the Beatles. Yeah, that'll do it. That'll, that'll fix it. <laughs> Uh, Preston wrote All That I've Got with Doris Troy, another American soul singer who was signed to Apple Records as well. He had intended to record a new sig single in November of 1969, but problems with his work permit in the UK delayed his re-entry into the country. The recording sessions instead began in mid-December in London. Now, after he joined Harrison in Copenhagen as a guest on the Delaney and Bonnie and Friends European tour, another song 
Right Now, that's the song I'm not just saying right now, Right Now was under consideration for the single, but it was kept aside for Preston's forthcoming album, Encouraging Words. Encouraging words like, keep on going, you're doing great, and hey, that's neat. Uh, Speaking of hey, that's neat, why don't we jump over to our other competitor and see if we think that they are as neat as this super neat musical artist. Now, it's not just neat, it's a winner, because the Chautauqua Prize is an annual American literary award established by the Chautauqua Institution in 2012. The winner receives a cool $7,500 in all travel and expenses for a one-week summer residency at Chautauqua. I don't know how to pronounce that word, and I'm going to get further and further from it the more I have to say it. Well, hopefully it'll show up a few more times. This is a national prize that celebrates a book of fiction or literary narrative nonfiction that provides a richly rewarding reading experience. And it honors the author for a significant contribution to the literary arts. We've got some winners listed here. We had in 2012, Andrew Krivik with The Sojourn. We had and a few runners up here. Let's see who won it most recently. We've got in 2020, Petina Gepa with Out of Darkness, Shining Light. I was really hoping I'd be able to look through this list and recognize a single book, but perhaps I don't read enough for that to be possible. I didn't realize that you'd actually learned to read yet, and that's what makes this podcast just that much more amazing. So all of these fantastic authors and they're also fantastic books uh i'm for it i'm glad that it's there 7500 bucks is nothing to balk at but um going back to our other competitor all that i've got i'm gonna give it to you i'm pretty sure that if he gave us all he got from just this song alone it'd probably be more than 7500 dollars. yeah i think he's gonna win even with the fact that i'm gonna hold it against him that he worked with two of the beatles i think he's still got enough in the tank to make it to the next round Well, okay, it says here that Preston had been a sideman and studio organist for such people as the Beatles, that's probably where they met, and Ray Charles, so that's pretty cool too. And now this George Harrison-produced song put him up front where he obviously belonged, and it's no different here in this round. The song, All That I've Got, I'm Gonna Give It To You, We Gotta Give It To You, and that is victory here in this round. Moving on to the next round of The Ultimate Tournament of Everything. You might be 108th in somebody else's heart, but you're at least less than that for us. That's right. You've made it into the top half of Infinity, and that's pretty cool. Speaking of top half, we're not there yet because now we're in the true middle of this episode. Round five. Round five. Round five. It was equally not as true when you said it about round four, and it's equally not as true when you say it about round five. But that's fine. That's fine. I don't understand fractions, ratios, or frankly, anything. So let's dig into these articles and see if we're able to understand two more elements of the infinite. We won't, because we're going to talk about the Pack Brothers and Diabolical Dynamics. Uh, we got the Pack Brothers, made up of two Pack men, and Diabolical Dynamics, which just at a glance, I'm pretty sure went into the making of Pac-Man and Mrs. Pac-Man, because those were some tricky games. So, let's jump in here and see what we can learn. Now, the Pack Brothers Photography Studio was one of the oldest photographic films in business in New York City, having begun operations in 1867. They, of course, did not create Pac-Man. That's got no H. This is P-A-C-H, although these are the Pack people. It was founded by German-born brothers Gustavus Pack and Gotthoff Pack and Morris Pack. Patrons included famous and ordinary Americans involved in business, politics, government, medicine, law, education, and the arts, as well as thousands of students, families, and children who sat for Pack cameras from 1866 onward. Unfortunately, there was a fire in 1895, which destroyed their New York studio and processing rooms, as well as their entire negative archive, a negative experience all around. The Pack Brothers firm, though, continued photographing for another hundred years until their dissolution in 1994. Who do you think took their pictures? 
Uh, probably the first selfies, I would guess. They probably did it themselves. No one else could be trusted to take such high-quality photos, which still survive to this day. Got a couple examples over here. Looks like they even got a picture of former U.S. President Benjamin Harrison. Now, if you had to list out all the presidents, would you have gone with? Would you have come up with Benjamin Harrison? Well, I think they probably could have gone with somebody more current. You know, maybe maybe Reagan, perhaps Obama. I don't know why they didn't do either of those guys. Yeah, I mean, to not reach out to somebody more significant, if yeah. you're going to take a picture that's over 125 years old, <laughs> yeah, it seems a little irresponsible. Uh, speaking of a little irresponsible, let's jump over to diabolical dynamics. Well, hang on. Before we do that, American president history, because I didn't know it, Benjamin Harrison was the grandson of William Harrison. So, so he was president, and then his granddad was president? Well, that sounds unfair. Uh, nepotism has always survived and lived strongly in the foundational roots of our society. It's the American way where the rules don't make any sense, just like Diabolical Dynamics, the game for the first robotics competition. Now, the field, the playing field, is a carpeted rectangular area, probably much like your living room. Dividing the field in half is an 18-inch high railing with a central bridge, which can tilt to either side of the field or remain level. Two seven-feet-high movable goals begin on opposite sides of the field, and around the perimeter of the field are two stations for human players who work with remote-controlled robots to score points. At the start of each match, the Alliance station contains 20 small balls. An additional 20 small balls and four large balls are located at the far end of the playing field. Robots playing is some sort of ball game um trying to get them through into goals yeah movable goals pretty cool so it's not like uh battle bots or anything like that this is more like soccer bots yeah it's but they're like it's not competition so each match is a maximum of two minutes long alliances can end the match at any time and alliances score one point for each small ball in the goal 10 points for each large one and 10 points for each robot in the end zone and another 10 if the stretcher's in the end zone. I didn't even know there was a stretcher involved. Now, the Alliance doubles its score for each goal that is on the bridge if the bridge is balanced and multiplies its score by a factor of up to three by ending the match before the two-minute time limit. Each team receives the Alliance score, and the team multiplies its score by 1.1 if its large ball is on top of the goal. I feel like this didn't catch on because there's so much math involved. Yeah, this is pretty uh, convoluted. Um Let's see about its re reception here. Most participants did not like the lack of red versus blue competition within matches. The head-to-head -head element was missing. While others praised the game for its inventiveness and emphasis on cooperation. A few considered it one of the best first, and that's uh, all capitalized, so probably some sort of robotics acronym, game designed. Yeah. I bet people loved it. Now, there were 515 teams, 13 regionals, including such pisker, pitch, pitch, picturesque locations. There we go. <laughs> As uh, Here's a word I won't mess up. Ypsilanti, Michigan. It looks like the national championship was held at Epcot Center, Disney World, Orlando, Florida. I wonder how many points you got for getting that big giant ball they got down there into the goal. Ooh, good question. I wonder if it was technically in the field of play, although I doubt it. Now, I think in this round between these two competitors, I think I have to give it to the Pack Brothers because without them, we probably wouldn't have pictures of any of these other things. I'm going to go ahead and agree with you. Uh, you know, they cataloged a lot of visual evidence of existence, and uh, it gives me the opportunity to have you join me in saying, Go Pack Go. He's not going to do it, but pack your bags, <laughs> Pack Brothers, because you're moving on to the next round of the Ultimate Tournament of Everything. So let us do the same and move on to round six. There you have it. There is your winner. Round six. In round six, we're going to talk about somebody who hated a bank and yet is on money and John Todd, the footballer. 
My goodness, another president showing up here in the articles. We've got the revered Andrew Jackson. Uh, solid 20 out of 10, right? Yeah, yeah, there we go. Yeah, I'm, yeah. you like uh, that one? One of America's uh, most racist presidents. Now, Andrew Jackson, American lawyer, planter, general, and statesman who served as the seventh president from 1829 to 1837. Before being elected to the presidency, he gained fame as a general in the army and served in both houses of Congress. Although often praised as an advocate for ordinary Americans, Jackson also has been criticized for his racial policies, particularly his treatment of Native Americans. Looks like uh, he was involved in a bunch of interesting and questionable things all the way through here's one i hadn't heard of jackson fought a duel with charles dickinson they had gotten into an argument over a horse race and dickinson allegedly uttered a slur against rachel i'm assuming that was someone of importance jackson's to... wife ah yes yeah. his wife so probably not the best idea during the duel dickinson fired first and the bullet hit jackson in the chest now this wound was not life-threatening because the bullet had shattered against his breastbone and jackson returned fire and killed dickinson now did you know that that's how charles dickinson died you're thinking of charles dickens oh yes i am uh, charles, yes, indeed, charles dickinson am. was an american attorney and famous duelist so famous he lost. An expert marksman died from injuries sustained in the duel with Jackson. Yeah. Well, there were other duels that this guy was involved. Times have really changed. <laughs> yeah, know? we don't we don't duel anymore. <laughs> like we don't we don't duel anymore and then police don't even get involved. I guess there's still duels. But then you always have to go see a judge afterwards. It's not like, well, I killed the man, but he started it. Yeah, it was just all Things are things where you know we are making progress in society, but let's talk about the other duel he was involved in, or at least adjacent to. Later in that same year, Jackson became involved in former Vice President Aaron Burr's plan to conquer Spanish Florida, the original Florida man, and drive for the Spanish from Texas. Jackson had first gotten to know Burr in 1805 when he stayed with the Jacksons at the Hermitage during a tour of what the Western United of what was then the Western United States that he had embarked upon after mortally wounding Alexander Hamilton in the Burr-Hamilton duel, which we are all so familiar of now. But eventually, uh, Burr persuaded Jackson to join his adventure. And uh, in October of 1806, Jackson wrote James Winchester that the United States, quote, can conquer not only the Floridas, at that time there was an East Florida and a West Florida, but all Spanish North America. He had big dreams and bad ideas. Why is it the two men who, who just killed someone in a duel are like, you know what we should do? I killed a guy, you killed a guy, let's go conquer Spanish Florida. That makes sense. Yeah, we, We're invincible. We, we, we're pretty good at this murder thing. <laughs> uh, sorry, Miss Jackson. That was Ooh. for real. So, <laughs> there's a lot to this article. If you have an hour to kill, you can definitely read through it. A lot of war, talk about the election, the death of his wife, his inauguration, reforms and rotation in office. Here we go. We'll talk about some reforms. Jackson's administration believed that Adams had been corrupt and one of Jackson's first acts as president was to initiate investigations into all executive departments. Now, the investigations revealed that $2,800,000, equivalent to about $7 million, was stolen from the Treasury, and the reduction in costs to the Department of the Navy saved it $1 million. One of the people caught in this was Treasury Auditor Tobias Watkins, a personal friend of Adams who was found guilty of embezzlement. In the first year of his term, Jackson asked Congress to tighten laws on embezzlement, revise laws to reduce tax evasion, and pushed for improved government accounting system. Yes, you want the government to be accounted and accounted for and accountable, truly. Um, but there's a lot to this article, and you can count on that I am not going to read it all right here and now. So let's get over to someone else who knows how to shoot quite well, Mr. John Todd, the footballer. Now, as we all know, football involves a lot of cannon fire. This man was born May 21st, 1938, and a former Australian rules footballer who played for South Fremantle Football Club in the West Australian National Football League. He won the Sandover Medal in his debut season at just 17 years old, but his playing career was cut short by a serious knee injury in his second season. 
While still a player, Todd embarked on a coaching career that spanned over 700 games and lasted over four decades. He became only the second coach to guide three WAFL or Waffle Clubs uh, listed here to premierships and led West Coast to its first finals appearance in 1988. Well, that's good that he's competitive in the Waffle he eventually coached for many seasons, coached lots and lots of teams, and it looks like as a coach, he had an overall win-loss record of 365 to 354 and 2, so very, very nearly even, but he won a little more than he lost. Yeah, not bad. Um, and, you know, having uh, over 500 record is important in sports. It's really more important in duels, uh, to be honest. But I'm kind of thinking that we don't need to – I'm not feeling like giving Alexander ja – or Andrew Jackson uh, another victory here. So I'm kind of just biased and going to go ahead with this football player who hurt himself in the second – game second season of his career playing he probably would have gone on to do so much more and so i'd like to give him the chance to go on to do just as much more in the next round of this here ultimate tournament i think that's probably fine because if the competition continues on we might have to talk about jackson's short-tempered and violent temperament but why why would we do that who has the time when instead we could talk about a man playing soccer for waffle that's right. We're not going to waffle on our decision here. John Todd, you've got two first names that are moving on to the next round of The Ultimate Tournament of Everything. You always got to give it to the guy with two first names. That's right. Uh, so, uh, Australian football rules, right? So you hear a lot about like Aussie football. Is this one where they can they can pick up the ball? and uh kick it is this like you can use your hands too yeah i have no idea how it works um but since since i don't know oh look at that round seven round seven round seven, round seven. in round seven we're going to talk about roar johansson and the Kyoflora flabaligarella Yes, we are. We've got another football-related individual from Norway facing off against everyone's favorite, Rob Q. the Horn, a moth. Not just any moth, Mike. This moth, this moth is, is... from Iran. <laughs> yeah, it is. And you know those are two of our favorite things. All wrapped into one, it's going to be tough for Roar Joe... Hansen, great name. We'll have to see if you're a great individual to conquer the great odds that you are at odds with. It's academic at this point. We all know the winner, but we'll talk about the loser anyway. Roar Johansson, born November 19th, 1968, Norwegian football manager, youth coach, and goalkeeper coach at Moss FK, and has coached the national youth teams for women. He became the main coach of Sarpsborg 08FF after Connie Carlson in the summer of 2009. One year later, Johansson and Sarpsborg 08 celebrated promotion to the 2011 Tipplegain. For his achievements, uh -huh. he was named Coach of the Year. Yep, uh, and Coach of the Year in 2010 Norwegian First Division by TipsGaming.com, the renowned website uh, that is listed and named thusly. In 2013, he managed UII Kisa, and after a stint at Hiffenfoss, uh, he went on to Beirum ahead of the 2015 season. He was sacked after the 2015 season and started working with marketing and media in Sarsborg 08. This job lasted till the end of the 2022 season. Now, it doesn't say what he's doing now, but probably other things. So let's move on to a competitor that we know exactly what they're doing now. They are being the best moth in Iran. Califora flabaligarella is a moth in the family Califoridae found in Iran. That's right, and that's also all we know, but I think that's also just enough. We love a moth. We love a small town in Iran, a small community. Normally they list uh, in those articles a number of families. I wonder how big the family of our good friend moth, uh, 
Coleophora is, uh, I wonder how many, it's got to be a big family. They lay like millions of eggs, I, I, I assume. Yeah, we don't know much about moths other than there are a lot of them. We haven't spent the time to learn actually more than like <laughs> they look mothy. <laughs> Well, yeah, they never include enough information in these articles. We're just uh, inexplicably stricken by them, and uh, and we love them. So if we're in accord here, I believe we are. Round two, hide your sweaters, because here comes another moth. The ultimate tournament of everything. Just one of the rules of the universe. If it's a moth, yeah. it wins. Well, okay, not every time. We have had moths uh, fall in these uh, competitions not a lot of times but it has happened but you compound that with it being a small thing in iran and uh good golly you thought it's just a recipe for victory uh, and victory is a dish that we like to serve over and over here in each of these rounds we've done so seven times let's go for eight in round ocho i say would you by chance have any round eight round eight in round eight, we're going to talk about Green Charter Township in Michigan against the 1989 Guangdong Hong Kong Cup. Ah, yes. Uh, Green Charter Township in the state of Michigan. I'm not sure. Isn't it technically uh, like uh, something called a special type of state? Uh, Michigan is an interesting place. That looks like a glove. And we've got something with an interesting name, the 1989 Guangdong Hong Kong Cup, which was the 11th staging of a competition between Hong Kong and Guangdong. Green Charter Township organized in 1858, before the Mocosta County was detached from Nuevo County, and as of the 2000 census, has a population of 3,209. Now, Paris. Yes, that Paris. No, not that one. We're, of course, talking about the unincorporated community in the largest settlement within the township of Greene County on the Muskegon River, north of Big Rapids. And so to give you a, a bit of a better sense of that, again, it looks like a mitten, you know, they say. And so if you're holding up your hand, basically where your ring finger's first knuckle joint would be, that's approximately where all of the 3,000-some individuals of this town do reside. Yeah, they live there. There's a parish fish hatchery. They have a total land area of 37.6 square miles. 1,247 households, 864 families reside in the township, population density of 86.9 inhabitants per square mile. There's a lot of numbers here, but it doesn't really tell me about the hopes and dreams of the people. But... There are hopes and dreams of fish because the Paris fish hatchery is uh, looks like a pretty big deal. There opened in 1881 and from 1913 to 1938, salmon and brown trout fingerlings were shipped by rail baggage cars in milk cans painted a distinctive red. The Works Progress Administration renovated and expanded the facility in the mid 1930s and this hatchery operated until 1964 and in 1972 was acquired by the Macosta County Park Commission and refurbished as a park that opened in July of 1976 and then in uh, 1980 students from the Macosta Osella Career Center in Big Rapids built a 20-foot tall replica of the Eiffel Tower out of metal frames from WPA workers' beds that had been stored within barns. That's nearly as tall as the real one. Nearly. That's the great thing about nearly. The word nearly is doing a lot of work in that sentence. Now let's talk about the 1989 Guangdong Hong Kong Cup played in Ganzhou while the second leg was played in Hong Kong. Yes, uh, and we're not sure if this was a competition that relied on legs primarily or on any other body part for that matter for the sport is not indicated here. Uh, looks like Hong Kong regained the championship by winning an aggregate 4-3 against Guangdong, uh, and we assume they did so in some sort of competitive sporting event, uh, apparently made up of squads, but uh, we don't know what they were doing. Well, all the people hyperlinked here do play soccer, so I assume it's probably soccer. 
Uh, it's a good, good bet. One of those individuals was Chang-Chi Tak, the former Hong Kong professional football player. His nickname was Little Ghost, and he's of Danish descent. That's a great nickname for, for a football player, but he's Danish, which also surprises me. But that's awesome. Now, little-known fact here, Hong Kong did, in fact, recapture the championship after Guangdong had won six consecutive times between 1982 and 1988. They were on quite a roll, but Hong Kong was able to best them in this iteration. Good for them. You know what? Good for them. Hong Kong, you need some wins, so we'll, we'll, give, you, we'll give you this one. Now, are you better than a place trying to be somebody else? Yeah, I mean, they've got, uh, they, they don't even have fish anymore. They've got a tiny little, you know, mini, 20 foot tall replica of the Eiffel Tower. Not that impressive. I, I'm not really blown away here. Uh, it's not even, you know, like one knuckle up on the mitten. You know, you're, you're not on the lake, either of them, really. You're not in the uh, UP. Uh, there's not, it's a township, too. It's not even like a whole, town nor is it a ship so i think i'm going to go with the one that is so fun to say and so fun to speculate about and move uh put my vote onto the 1989 guangdong hong kong cup i agree keep you know stop beating the mic they're already dead the ultimate tournament of everything who who died Apparently that small town, you kept listening to all the things that made them terrible, and it just kept going and going and going. <laughs> we get it. Come at me, Green Charter Township, Michigan. And speaking of uh, coming, let's get to the coming round. Round nine. It's about time round nine. Round nine. In round nine, we're going to talk about P slash 2011 P1 McNaught against Ray Wallace of American football fame. Uh, two things that are literally and figuratively out of this world. We've got P2011 P1 McNaught, a Jupiter family comet that uh, apparently passed extremely close to Jupiter, versus Ray Wallace, an American footballer. First one of those we've had in a while. Looks like he played running back. Now, as in life, you never want to get too close to massive planets because this comet McNaught passed extremely close to Jupiter and disintegrated. It was discovered on August 1st, 2011 by astronomer Robert H. McNaught at the Siding Spring Observatory in New South Wales in Australia. Had an observation arc of 415 days, this comet's nominal orbit solution suggests that its 2010 approach distance was 0.00084 astronomical units from Jupiter's center, which is, of course, well within Jupiter's Roche limit, at which the comet would be torn apart by the tidal forces. Now, the earliest pre-covery image of the comet. Now, of course, pre-covery is when you recognize you discovered it, so you go back to see if you found it before you knew it was found. The earliest image of that was taken by the PanStars 1 on the 6th of December, 2010, two days after its close pass with Jupiter. Yes, this is a very fascinating rock that uh, really rocked so hard that it's no longer a rock. Um, orbital period of 21.88 years. It had an inclination of 6.309 degrees. Had a uh, bunch of other numbers and things here that I don't know what any of them mean. But uh, looks like it was... Oh, a number of observations, 161. So 161 times people looked up and said, hey, there it is. Now let's look, hey, at Ray Wallace. Ray Wallace was born December 3rd, 1963. He's the former American football running back from the NFL who played for the Houston Oilers and the Pittsburgh Steelers. He played college football for the Purdue Boilermakers. Always like to play for those hardworking individuals, the Oilers, the Steelers, and the Boilermakers. This guy obviously knew how to put his nose to the grindstone and the pigskin. Looks like he was drafted in 1986, round six, pick number 145, um, averaging three yards per carry. He had a total of 330 
carries. And within those 330 attempts, he managed four rushing touchdowns. Yeah, it looks like he played four years, rushed for 330 total yards. Doesn't look like he was very good, but you know what? He was good enough to be remembered, just like the Comet. Now, which one of those, under the unbearable weight of being close to something more famous, will survive into the next round of this tournament? Now, before we tell you which one will be our winner, and probably not the one you'd agree with, you can listen to more episodes like this pretty frequently. Sometimes every day, sometimes once a week, sometimes whenever we feel like posting them. But don't worry. Articles from Wikipedia that you wouldn't pick read to you in a way that you probably wouldn't pick as well. That's what we're good at. That's right. And that's what we're here to provide for free uh, until someone deems that it's worth more than that. So we've got these full length episodes, which are structured nine rounds of head to head competition. And we also have our scouting reports, taking a pacifistic look at just one element of the infinite to see how it may fare when it inevitably shows up to battle it out in one of these nine rounds of the full length episodes. So don't forget, you can always listen to those like comment, rate, subscribe, tell your friends that the ultimate tournament of everything is certainly cool so without any further ado who are we going to choose here in this ninth round i think i'm gonna have to go with the comet mcnaught it flew a little close to jupiter but don't we all mm. i'm mcnaught going to disagree with you uh yes there's nothing more uh, gravitationally attractive than giant gaseous balls. And so I just, you know, I feel like I relate to this. I appreciate this comet. And uh, it's a good thing that we do because we can't really do it uh, any longer because it's gone because of the sheer massivity of Jupiter. So P2011, P1 McNaught, uh, you're amongst the stars. And we're moving on to the next round of the ultimate tournament of everything. Thank you, everybody. Have a good day. The ultimate tournament of everything.